Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 29, we read, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Our study in the last days, according to the king, has prompted a lot of different responses. For some, the study is exciting. For others, it's terrifying. Some have found the information that I've given over the last several weeks overwhelming, difficult to understand. Warren Wiersbe wrote, quote, The purpose of prophecy is not to entertain the curious, but to encourage the consecrated, unquote. I love that. The purpose of prophecy isn't for entertainment purposes. I'm going to suggest to you it's not even for purposes so that you have a little bit more information, but it's to encourage you and to give you hope as you see things unfolding in this world you have the settled confidence that a real Jesus is returning. In the closing verses of Revelation 22:20, John records the final words of Jesus, "Surely, I am coming quickly." John writes, "Even so, come, Lord Jesus." But I suspect that some of us may not really believe with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our mind when we hear the words that Jesus is coming back quickly. Again, I think of the song, the master went away from us 2,000 years ago. He left us with his promise to return. How our hearts do long for him. We miss the master so. We, we have to keep the faith and let the fire burn, but after 2,000 years, for some, it's the embers are starting to die and apathy and indifference might be kicking in. Matthew describes the signs preceding the second coming of Jesus. Remember, we were given hints of signs concerning a Jewish temple, signs of the times, signs in the heavens, signs on the earth, moral signs, global signs, technological signs, religious signs, false prophets, false teachers offering false prophecies that fail to come true. And we see that the evaluation that we are to give to them is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. If what they say isn't true, then we're to reject them. In short, 
Deception by false teachers, verses 4 and 5. Destruction by wars, verses 6 and 7. Devastation by disasters, verses 7 and 8. Deliverance to tribulation by believers, verse 9. Defection from the truth by make-believers in verses 10 through 13. Declaration of the truth, that is the gospel, is preached among the whole world in verse 14. Daniel's abomination, which makes desolate in verse 15. Demonic attempts to wipe out the Jewish people in verses 16 and 17. A determined judgment by God on the enemies of God in verses 18 through 28. Now Jesus tells his disciples, he will return. We might call this D-Day, Judgment Day. The return of Jesus that's been longed for and laughed at and cried about and mocked and anticipated and argued and believed and disbelieved and debated. His return has been lied about, complicated, condemned. But Jesus said he will return. And I believe him. So the big question is, do you? Do you really believe him? How has this belief shaped your life, molded your attitude, caused your perspective to be informed? And again, remember... As Jesus repeats at the beginning of verse 29, immediately, immediately, not a long time, immediately after the tribulation of those days. The implication is the events that unfold are dramatic and not over a long period of time, but in a short period of time. The beginning of this verse destroys the preterist and the partial preterist argument. By the way, remember... Preterist means those people who believe that the prophecies in chapter 24 and 25 have already come to pass. The partial preterist believes that only some of the prophecies have come to pass. Everyone really is a partial preterist in this sense. Everyone who believes that some of the prophecies in the Bible have already taken place would put us in the camp of the partial preterist. We believe that a real Jesus came. We believe a real Jesus was born of a virgin. We believe in the prophecies that said he would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born a Jew. He would be born of the tribe of Judah. He would be born of the son of David. All of the Old Testament prophecies that have come to pass have in fact come to pass. But for the person who argues that the fulfillment of the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD marks the fulfillment of these things, can't argue with any coherence the truth. Because Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days. There has been no no, uh, destruction of the temple in this sense. There was a destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but after the destruction of the temple, there wasn't bizarre, incredible astronomical phenomenon like verse 29. Jesus didn't appear like verse 30. All the nations didn't mourn his coming like verse 30. 
The angels didn't gather the elect from the four corners of the globe. The text says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Which days? The dark days of frequent, intense, increasing judgment. It is all of the things that we've already studied from verse 4 to verse 28. And if you've missed it, go to the media room. Go online. Find it. In the final years of the Great Tribulation, Satan will be allowed what seems like unprecedented and unrestricted access to the people of the planet Earth to do what he pleases. I believe the church will be raptured prior to the signs given in verses 4 through 28. What could happen from today until the coming of the great tribulation? Well, if the past is any indication of the future, there could be an increase in hot wars and cold wars. Could there be a limited nuclear exchange between nations? Of course there could, particularly when stupid people have nuclear capability. Pakistan and India have nuclear capability. We're kidding ourselves if we believe that North Korea does not have nuclear capability. I'm just sort of philosophically opposed to anyone who believes in reincarnation having nuclear capability. <laughs> could there be a limited nuclear exchange? Yes, there could be. Would the whole world change? Yes, of course it would. Will America continue to weaken in the future, it could happen. What role does America play in the future predictions of the Bible? Will we continue to experience what Joel Rosenberg calls a moral implosion? Could the United States be weakened or destroyed by an electromagnetic pulse that's an EMT attack? That possibility isn't just for prophecy buffs or for people who preoccupy themselves with the end times. As a matter of fact, it has been documented by a blue ribbon commission created by Congress called the Commission to Assess the Threat to the United States from the Electromagnetic Pulse Attack. Their findings, not prophecy buffs' findings, their findings, a single nuclear weapon delivered by a missile at a few hundred miles over the United States would yield a catastrophic damage to the United States. The missile could be easily launched 300 miles off the East Coast or off of the West Coast. We're playing games if we just simply play games thinking about the, the ICBM delivery systems. At at a height of 300 miles, the entire continental United States, all of Canada, all of Mexico would be at risk. The commission noted that such a weapon would severely damage the electrical power systems, electronic weapon systems, information systems, the use of cell phones, telecommunications, transportation systems would be compromised, fuel, energy, banking, financial systems, emergency services, food and water shortages would be affected. Our nation is already 20 plus trillion dollars in debt. 
the fourth largest city in our country went underwater last weekend. We have a gross dependence on foreign oil and foreign goods. What would it take to shift the balance of power from here to Western Europe or the Eastern nations? It would only take one catastrophic event. If the rapture takes place prior to the great tribulation, and I believe that it will, and the restrainer is removed, and I believe he will be removed, a global transfer of power could take place and the world could change immediately, suddenly, violently. The Bible includes the appearance of an antichrist leader, a global government, the escalation of deception. The book of Revelation describes seal judgments that involve bloodshed, famine, death, economic upheaval, a great earthquake, severe cosmic disturbances recorded in Revelation 6. After the trumpet judgments, there's a gruesome image of hail mixed with fire, and blood turning the sea to blood, water turning bitter, cosmic disturbances, affliction by demonic hordes, the death of one-third of the global population in Revelation chapter 8, verse 6. And guess what? The worst hasn't even happened. The worst hasn't happened. The worst in the Bible is described as yet to come. If you look at Revelation chapter 16 and the bold judgments and the people of the earth are afflicted with painful, severe sores that appear to be a lot like radiation poisoning. Everyone who's taken the mark of the beast and worshiped the image is going to be afflicted in chapter 16 verse 2. A second angel pours out the content of that angel's bowl into the sea and it becomes red like the blood of a corpse. Every living thing in the sea dies according to Revelation chapter 16 verse 3. A third angel pours out the content of its vessel into the springs of water. That's the fresh water supplies. They become blood. The text says, quote, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was and who has come to bring these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. The implication being the severe, continuous, unremitting persecution that takes place on the part of the saints is going to be recompensed blood for blood. The text says it is what they deserve in verses 4 through 6. A fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun and the people are scorched with a fierce heat. And they curse the name of God who had the power over these plagues according to the scripture. And again, the repetition takes place. They did not repent. They did not give him glory in verses 8 and 9. In short order, a fifth and then a sixth bowl is described. The fifth angel pours his bowl on the throne of the beast. 
and its kingdom is plunged into darkness. People gnaw their tongue in anguish. They curse the God of heaven because of the pain and the sores. Repeated, verse 10 and 11, they did not repent of their deeds. A sixth angel pours his bowl into the great river Euphrates. The water dries up to prepare the kings of the east to invade the west. The text says, quote, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for a battle on that great day of God Almighty. And then there's a parenthetical note given by John, said, perhaps spoken in his ear, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them in a place in the Hebrew that's called Har Megito. It's translated Armageddon. The powers of heaven are shaken before Christ's return. At the end of verse 29, it says, the sun is darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars fall from the heaven, the powers of heaven are shaken. Jesus describes the condition of the universe before his return. And some have likened this as a tilt or a wobble of the earth itself. If you are unaware of of astronomy or astronomical phenomenon, most of you obviously know that the earth rotates around the sun and the moon rotates around the earth and the moon faces the earth, only one side of the earth. But you may not know that the sun is hurtling through the solar system at 70,000 kilometers per hour. It's not just a vertical rotation. There's a vortex that's formed as the sun itself and all of the planets being dragged by the sun is hurling through space. And can you imagine if God just simply tilts the earth just slightly? If an electromagnetic event causes the earth to wobble. In 2004, when the plates separated under the, Ind- under the Indian Ocean, the earth itself moved eight meters. Imagine a gigantic earthquake where the tectonics rotate or the earth itself rotates. Literally, as it rotates, it would seem like the sun disappears and the moon disappears. And as we're hurling through space, it would appear like the stars are falling from heaven. Will the earth literally flip on its axis? I don't know. The whole universe, according to one Bible writer, says, will begin to disintegrate, apparently with great rapidity, unquote. In Luke's parallel account, in Luke 21, 25, it says this. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity. That word perplexity could literally be translated, no way out, no 
solution to the problems that are unfolding. The text says the sea and the waves are roaring. Luke 21, 26, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven will be shaken. The image that's given in the Bible as the events unfold, increase in frequency and intensity is that people simply drop dead out of sheer terror. The description, people's hearts failing them for fear, is a mechanism, it's an idiomatic expression, which means their heart stops working. The Greek term for faint means expire, die. Or it can mean to stop breathing. People are literally scared to death. All the hurricanes, all the floods, all the tsunamis. If we take them over a period of time and experience in the course of a single year, still would not come close to the extreme disruption that's described in the Bible. Some scholars have argued that this is figurative language or metaphorical language to describe that which is indescribable. Jesus uses language that seems to describe the unraveling, literally, of the fabric of the universe. Is such a thing even possible? In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and 14, it says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. The stars fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. The only way that that could possibly happen is if there is a, a geologic disruption of such profound proportions, if the earth in fact did shift or flip on its axis or moved where the Antarctic is now placed in a position where it's in the tropics and the plate tectonics of the earth literally begin to break apart, it would describe what is taking place in this situation. And so the most important question then is, well, should we freak out? The answer is no. The Bible says that Jesus, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, all things are held by him, Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the glue that holds the universe together. All Jesus has to do is simply release his grip. Just release his grip. And all of reality could unfold. The same Jesus who holds the universe in his hand 
holds you in his hand. He leads, he guides. Remember what we've already learned, just like when we were talking about God's heart towards Israel. Remember I told you that his first inclination is affection, his second preservation, and then protection. God's inclination towards you isn't to let you go. It's to hold on to you. It's to lead you, guide you. Isaiah saw this day. Isaiah saw it hundreds of years before Jesus. In Isaiah 13, 6 and 8, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Now, according to Isaiah, it isn't from geologic phenomenon. It isn't from a disconnected celestial circumstance. It isn't just because, hey, guess what? The law of entropy requires that the earth just simply wind down. No, there is a judgment that's coming upon the whole earth. In verse 7 of Isaiah, it says, therefore all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. Verse 8, they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces, according to the text, will be like flames. What odd language. The odd language is panic, terror, pain. And imagine you look at someone right next to you and their face goes up in flames. It sounds like the part of almost like a nuclear holocaust. Isaiah's prophecy goes on to say in verses 9 and 10 that the sun will be dark. The moon will not give its light. And then this. And thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold, unquote. According to Isaiah, gold will be way more plentiful than human beings. Do you realize if I took every ounce of every single piece of gold that exists in the entire world, all of the reserves of the United States, all of the reserves of Britain, all of the reserves of Russia and China, if I took all of the gold from every country, everywhere, and then all of the gold that's privately owned by every single person who exists, I could fit it on this platform. Woe is right. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, well, it's not only weird, according to the Bible, human beings will be placed on the cosmic endangered species list. Haggai 2 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and the dry land, shaken, not stirred, (laughs) shaken, I'll shake the nations, according to Haggai chapter 2, verses 6, and then 7, it says, I'll shake the nations, and then it says this, and they will come 
to the desire of all nations. This is a, a messianic title of Jesus. He's called that person desired by the nations. And I will fill his temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The cliff notes for the wrath of God. The sun is darkened. The moon refuses to give light. The stars fall from the sky. The powers of heaven are shaken. So when some stupid idiot tries to tell you that the eclipse that took place last week is the end of the world, you go, I don't think you've read what the Bible has to say. It doesn't just simply describe some sort of passage of the moon between the earth and the sun. Well, what about the four blood moons? Well, what about them? What's being described here is not just celestial phenomenon. We're talking about the breakdown of the universe. And then look what it says in verse 30. The prophecy fulfilled. Jesus returns. Look what it says. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. We come to the climax of Christ's briefing to his friends about the questions that had to be answered in verse 3. The signal and the sign, the Son of Man appears in heaven. The summons, angels are sent forth with a mighty trumpet blast to gather the elect from the furthest reaches of heaven and earth, verse 31. Some suggest that this might be the lightning that was talked about in verse 27. Others suggest that this is the awesome presence of what's called the Shekinah, or mispronounced the Shekinah, the glory of Christ, that this is that plenary, meaning full, effulgence of all of the, of the majesty of, of the presence of the glory of Jesus. Others don't even venture a guess. Some ancient commentators in the early church fathers believed that this would be a burning cross that lights up the sky and every eye would see it. That's what Cyril of Jerusalem thought, Origen and Chrysostom. But I believe the sign is the real literal, personal, for real appearance of Jesus. The way the Greek text reads, it's in the subjective genitive. I don't expect you to understand what that means. But the sign doesn't simply point to the object Jesus. The sign is Jesus. It's not some invisible, supernatural, hocus-pocus. The real Jesus really shows up. He doesn't come back as a space alien. He doesn't come back as an assisted, ascended master. He doesn't come back as some reincarnated personality. He doesn't come back as a publishing company, the Watchtower and Track Society. He doesn't come back as a human committee or federation of evolved species from other worlds. He comes back. The real Jesus, the one you've read about in the opening chapters of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, he comes in person, in public, in power. And look what it says at the end of verse 30, the presence and the glory of Jesus. And then all the tribes of the earth will celebrate. Is that what the text says? It doesn't say that. All the tribes of the earth will throw a party. It'll be like New Year's Eve. It'll be like Prince singing 1999. 
then all the tribes of the earth will read it, mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. <laughs> when Rolf first heard this, he goes, he hears Chuck say, he's coming in the clouds with great glory. And Rolf says, why would Jesus come back with great glory? You go, Rolf, it's not great glory, it's great glory. The nations, the tribes, this is the people groups that exist on the earth. They mourn. It means grieve. It means sorrow. Mourning is the emotional stress that comes when you experience a profound sense of loss. Why are the people mourning? Jesus has returned. Why are the nations mourning? Because it turns out that Jesus is Lord of all. And he's the Lord after all. And all of that stuff that you read in the Bible, and all the prophecies that were made, it sounds so fantastic. It sounds so unbelievable. I saw a bumper sticker that said, sure, he came once, but he can't possibly come twice. But Jesus has returned. Jesus has returned. And the nations regret their lost opportunity because week, day, week, month, repetitive, continual, ongoing conversations were, please turn from your sin. Please turn to the Savior. Please repent of your sin. Please accept Christ. Please don't live your life as if it's not true. Please live your life in such a way that you begin to understand that God loves you and he cares about you, that sin is a problem, and Jesus is willing to forgive you and, and, and embrace you. Will they mourn because of their lost opportunities? And I think that the answer is yes. The bigger question that we, we don't get to be in charge of what they're doing when Jesus comes back. We only get to be in charge of what we do right now. Will you mourn your lost opportunities? What will you do? Will you be one of those people who cry and mourn and wonder? Will you be one of those people who says, I wish I would have paid attention. I wish I would have read my Bible. I wish I would have listened carefully and prayerfully and allowed the words to convict my heart. If only I had accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If only I had believed the testimony of the prophets. If only I had believed the testimony of the empty tomb. If only I had believed the words of the prophets. If only I had believed the gospel. The prophet Zechariah records these words in Zechariah 13.6. And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. In Zechariah's prophecy, the people of Israel want to know, why this space invader? 
has holes in his arms and his feet and a spear bruise in his side. Why does this space invader look exactly how the New Testament describes Jesus? Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even though who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, John writes. Will Jesus really come in the clouds? Yes. The psalmist spoke of God's using clouds and chariots in Psalm 104.3. Isaiah wrote of the Lord riding on a swift cloud, Isaiah 19.1. Are these atmospheric clouds? Are these supernatural clouds of glorified beings? Is it that? Is it both? I don't know. But whatever it is, it's going to be glorious. The second coming of Jesus taken as a whole with the combined testimony of the scriptures envisions a global confrontation of Jesus with his enemies. The armies of the Antichrist are defeated, not by the armies of Christ, but by Jesus alone. Jesus doesn't need your help to overcome the devil or the Antichrist or the armies of the Antichrist. All Jesus has to do is open his mouth and say, disappear. And then they're gone. The brightness of his coming, the glory of his presence, the absolute beauty of him. The armies of the Antichrist are defeated. They're consumed by the word that proceeds from his mouth. And when Jesus returns, every eye sees him. How is that even possible? We live on a spherical globe hurling through space. How is it possible that surviving humanity will be able to see him? A few solutions have been offered. Is it possible because all of the human beings that remain on the earth at this particular time and place in the future find themselves in a localized place? Could it be as the course of the day that the earth rotates that like a meteorite entering earth's atmosphere, it lights up the sky. Is it possible that Jesus is accompanied by the hosts of heaven as he descends to the earth and he makes his way to the Mount of Olives in such a way that his presence is unavoidable and unmistakable? I think that that's the answer. In Colossians 3.3, 3, it says in verse 3 and 4, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. How is that even possible? It seems possible only if your ultimate destination, if you know and love Jesus, is that you're going to be with him forever. 
you're going to accompany him forever. If Jesus is in heaven, you're in heaven. If he decides to go to Mars, you're going to Mars. If he makes a, a, a planetary jaunt, you're going with him. If he comes to the earth, you're with him. If the earth and the heavens pass away, then guess what? You're with him. You will be wherever he will be. The testimony of the scriptures is that Jesus will be with you and you will be with him and that he possesses the power and the glory to make such a thing happen, and he will demonstrate absolute power over the Antichrist, over the armies of the Antichrist, over Satan, over Satan's servants. He will demonstrate his ability to protect his people and preserve his people and restore his people and then to restore a devastated earth. And according to the scripture, he comes, whether you like it or not, to conquer and to destroy his enemies. The beast, the false prophet, all the ungodly human beings who worship the Antichrist, according to the Bible, are placed in the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. Well, what about those who were just mistaken? I mean, when Jesus shows up, can't I just offer an apology? Can't I just say, sorry? I just misunderstood. I didn't believe the testimony of the Bible and the, and the saints. I mean, after all, it's kind of ridiculous to think that such a thing could even be possible. Whatever apology or whatever lame explanation is given for unbelief, the evil and unbelieving people who've rejected Jesus will be punished. And those who have repented and trusted Jesus will be saved. I read an interesting story this week about Calvin Coolidge. When he was vice president of the United States, as many of you know, if you know the Constitution, the vice president presides over the Senate. And so even though the vice president is the vice president of the United States, he's the president of the Senate. An altercation broke out between two senators and tempers flared and words were exchanged and one senator said to the other senator, go to hell. The offended senator stormed from his seat, marched down the aisle, stood before Mr. Coolidge, who was reading silently from a book. Mr. President, he said, did you hear what the senator said to me? <coughs> Coolidge looked up from the book and he said calmly, you know, I've been looking through the rule book. You don't have to go. I've been looking through the rule book. You don't have to go. It doesn't have to end badly for you. Right now, you don't have to go. And look what it says in verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In, first, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, we read, the Lord Jesus shall be 
revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The Savior isn't coming from downstairs. The Savior's coming from upstairs. The Savior isn't coming from the east or the west or the north or the south. He's coming from heaven with his angels. And who are the elect? The Bible makes reference to three groups who are called the elect. Israel is called the elect. The church is called the elect. The saints killed during the tribulation holocaust are called the elect. Here the elect might mean every person chosen by God in every age, whether in heaven or earth. But what I want to bring to your attention is the role that the angels play. They're called the gatherers. In ancient times, the trumpet was the instrument of choice to call the people to a gathering. The Bible describes angels being used by God to gather the unsaved for judgment, to gather the saved for reward. All the saints of God will gather from all over the earth, from heaven itself, and many of the frightened people who may have been hiding in caves or shelters, all the redeemed from the past and the present and the future, gather together to celebrate the beginning, a new beginning of Christ's kingdom on the earth, the restoration and repair of the planet according to the scriptures will begin. Isaiah eleven six through 9 reads, you've read it. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play in the cobra's hole. The weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. It all sounds so incredible. It sounds like science fiction. But the Bible says it's Bible fact. No one knows the day when Jesus will return. Look what it says in verse 36. But of that day and of that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus will touch down on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and 8. By the way, the Mount of Olives is one of the most important sites in Bible history and Bible prophecy. For those of you who are going to Israel with me, we're going to be there. We're going to see that very mount. It rises above Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, by about 318 feet. It's 2,743 feet above sea level. In the time of Jesus, it was also called the Mount of Lights because it designated the beginning of the new month and the new year. This place is the place where David paused and prayed and wept when he was driven from his home by his rebellious son, Absalom. Tradition has it that this is 
the place where Jesus prayed the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's a church there. It's called the Church of Prayer. And in that church, there's slabs of marble. And on the slabs of marble written in 32 different languages is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus comes to that place where pilgrims have prayed in every generation over and over, come Lord Jesus. Remember, part of the purpose for the coming of Jesus is to defeat the Antichrist, gather the nations together at Armageddon. John Phillips writes, quote, in a few graphic sentences, we're told how Satan's rickety empire collapses like a house of cards when the Lord appears. We're told how Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. John says, and I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a, cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls, that fly in the midst of heaven, come, gather yourselves together for the supper of the great, that you will eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses that sit on them. We've already talked about that. Remember from the passage that we've already studied when Jesus said in verse 28, for wherever the carcass is gathered, the eagles will be gathered together. Jesus is coming back. But it should cause you not to be terrified, but to be filled with hope. Because Jesus is coming back with you or for you. Do you know what that means ultimately? I guess I'm going to give the answer to the question that I gave you at the beginning of the sermon. What does this mean? What does this mean? It must mean, it must mean that in the not-too-distant future, every wrong that has ever been committed will be righted. Every evil that has happened will be undone. Everything that has gone bad and gone wrong will be made right. You may be thinking to yourself that you got a raw deal that you've experienced some great difficulty. But make no mistake about it. Jesus will come back. And he'll make sure that everything wrong is made right. He's going to close the section with some practical instructions, admonitions, if you will, in the form of illustrations. One is going to be from a fig tree in verses 32 through 35. Another's going to be about Noah in verses 36 through 41. And then Jesus is going to give us a final lesson about a thief who comes in the night in verses 42 through 51. So hold on to your hats. Right when you thought it's over, it's not over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to take a, just a brief moment and give you thanks and give you praise. And again, in every generation, saints have gathered and they've partaken of communion. Lord, I pray for each individual here 
for those who know you, that they would be comforted by the fact that a real Jesus will really return. That you, our Father, are worthy of honor and praise and glory. Lord, we pray that as we partake of communion that we'll remember the words of Jesus, how on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken for you. And again, the Bible says he gave thanks and praise and he gave the cup and he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. Judgment for our sin has already taken place. But the judgment for sin, for some, will take place in the future. Heavenly Father, you've revealed that every single person will face you, either as judge or as Savior. Lord, I pray that you would awaken in our hearts a profound appreciation for all that Jesus has done and given us us this wonderful opportunity to once again declare our love and our loyalty to Jesus. So Lord, I pray that the saints would partake of this communion. And I pray for that person, unsure, about their heart condition and their spiritual circumstances. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you even now and that they would pray a simple prayer. Lord, I want to face you, not in judgment, but as a child facing her father, facing his father, person who loves you and believes in you, who's experienced grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope. Lord, I want to live my life free from terror and anxiety about the future. Lord, I want to be that person who believes with all of my heart everything that the Bible says about my spiritual condition and the solution for that spiritual condition. That I can love you. That I can know you. And that I could be with you forever. And so Lord, again, I pray that you would fill the saints with courage. And I pray that you would fill the person who for whatever reason, decides that he or she doesn't want that for their life. That you would allow these words to ring in their ears. Grace precedes judgment. Now is the time. Today is the day to be saved. Today is the day to have a right relationship with God and Christ. Okay.